0: That is not a bad way to start Bible study, is it? I am nothing if not dramatic, and so I thought a little hallelujah chorus would be good for all of us this morning. I'm going to get to why. Um, If you read ahead, you probably read a verse in chapter 11, which which is what we are doing today that may have reminded you of the hallelujah chorus, and so we're going to hit that um, later on in today's study, but I figured I'll try to incorporate some music before we begin each week that has some connection to the chapter we will be studying. And so today it was kind of obvious, had to do the Hallelujah Chorus, and ha, puts me in a good mood for Bible study. So good morning, everyone. Glad that you are with me again. We are going to be looking at chapter 11 of Revelation, and I'm glad to be doing this study with you. A little housekeeping. This is a good digital community, and I want to make sure you're part of it. So visit stmichael.org rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study, and sign up for our email list so you can be reminded and kept in the loop of everything that we are doing. And I'm very happy to report today that we have upgraded, transitioned, whatever you want to say, <clears throat> from SoundCloud, which is the platform we've been using for the audio of these studies, We have shifted from SoundCloud to a legitimate podcast. So now, if you like to listen to this study rather than watching the video, and who could blame you, then I want to invite you to search for Rector's Bible Study in any podcast platform you use. So regardless of whether it's Apple Podcast or any other podcast platform, if you search for Rector's Bible Study, this one will come up. And although we only have a few episodes now, I think it's maybe starts in chapter eight or nine of Revelation. We have a plan over the next week or two to transition and put everything there, which includes more than four years of study together. And so that's a great way for you to listen if you're out walking or exercising or in the car and a video just isn't really useful then now you can do your podcast and I hope that it works and makes this as convenient as possible for all of you. If you'd like more information about how you can sign up for a podcast, then that information is also on our website, stmichael.org slash RBS. So looking forward to seeing how that helps everyone access this study. Now, let's have a prayer. We will jump in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to spend time together as we study the story of your work of salvation for all of creation. I ask your blessing upon all those who are joining us. Help empty their hearts and minds of whatever weighs them down that they can be filled with your spirit and by being filled with your spirit inspired to do the work you have given to each of us in the world you love. God, we ask that you hold in your hands all those who need your healing touch, those who are ill, those who are near death, and those we love and see no longer. May they feel your presence, know your love, and may we be witnesses to them of the hope that you promise each one of us. All this we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. A reminder, I love questions and comments. And so do make comments in the comment fields. If you are watching on one of our social media platforms, say hi. Check in with one another. I know people tell me all the time that it makes them feel a little less lonely while we're still physically separated from one another when they get to see faces up there and make comments and all that stuff. So do please make that, make those comments work. Um, And I just got notified that maybe Facebook isn't working, so I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Um, Not much I can do now that we're live, so we're just going to kind of keep rolling. Um, Let's see. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe Meredith can go take a look or get someone to do a little troubleshooting. And if Facebook crashed and it's not there, then no worries. We will post this recording after the fact. All right. Let's jump in. Last week, we began a little interlude, and that interlude is between the sixth and seventh trumpets. That interlude kind of continues in the beginning of chapter 11 today. So chapter 11, the first half-ish, is kind of a completion of that interlude, and then in the second half of chapter 7, we get the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So two parts of today's lesson. We've got the two witnesses in the first half of chapter 11, and then we've got the seventh trumpet in the second half of chapter 11. So I laughed when I read the opening of N.T. Wright's commentary on chapter 11. It was quite funny. Um, I'll read this little portion for you, for all of you who read ahead and thought, what is going on? So N.T. Wright writes, People find many books publishing, uh, I'm sorry, people find many books puzzling, but the Bible is often the most puzzling of all. People find many parts of the Bible puzzling, but Revelation is often seen as the most puzzling book of all. And people find Revelation puzzling, but the first half of chapter 11, the passage that we are now going to be studying, is for many the most puzzling part of all. And he says there are some other strong contenders for this dubious distinction, but chapter 11 can really hold its own. And I have to agree. The first half of chapter 11 is a little loopy and crazy, but you know what? We're going to go for it. And I think we're going to really get a lot out of it. So first half of chapter 11, as I said, is the continuation of that interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Let's start with the first two verses. Ready? Chapter 11, verses one and two. Let's read together. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given under to the, over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Now we'll pause there. Chapter 11 is this final act in the second woe, And John, as we remember, has eaten the scroll, sweet and bitter, and now he's owning his role as that prophet. John is instructed here to measure the temple of God. Now, we might immediately assume that the one temple in Jerusalem is the temple that John is supposed to measure, or perhaps we think that it's some physical temple elsewhere, like those little temples or synagogues around. But John is not to measure a physical space. Rather, John is to measure the community of God. These are the followers of Jesus, the ones who have really received Jesus' prophetic vision and become God's disciples in this new way. Perhaps the most notable thing here at the beginning is that a portion of the temple is to be left unmeasured. In other words, a portion of the temple is really to be left unprotected. This is very interesting Because if the temple is the community, then some of the community is going to be unprotected. Now this reminds me of quite a few questions that we have received over the last few weeks that regard the sealing of God's people. Now if you remember, God's faithful people received a seal. And we talked weeks ago about how the seal of God is really meant to be God's protection. Right? When people are sealed, when the faithful people are sealed, then God is protecting them. However, over the last few chapters, we've seen some really horrible things, right? Remember the angels by the river Euphrates who were released, and then that two million strong cavalry came and killed a third of humanity? So I've received many questions from people asking about why the seals. And if the seals protect the people, and if the seals don't protect the people, then why not? Okay, so let's start again and say that the seals, yes, are meant for protection. However, those seals don't actually protect the people from harm. We're told earlier, a few chapters ago, that those who are faithful, those who are sealed, will be protected from death, but those who are sealed aren't protected from the suffering. And that's a hard thing to hear because we would expect or perhaps hope that being faithful to God, being part of God's community, being sealed by God would actually protect us from everything bad. And that's not what we see here. We see here that God's seals don't protect from suffering, from pain, from bad things. God's seals protect from death But to be honest with you, it's unclear whether that means death for good or whether that means death in the sense of being left out of the resurrection. It's entirely possible that as John writes this, he's really intending that perhaps physical death, yes, but not spiritual death. Or in other words, you die as a faithful person and then in the end, You are resurrected, right? We have that second new creation and the resurrection of those who were faithful. It's unclear. And so the answer is not entirely sure, but yes, the seals are meant to protect. We have an indication that those seals protect from harm, not death. And that's about as far as we can go. Now we're gonna see a bit more death coming, so just hold tight to that idea. So as I noted, a portion of the temple is left to be unmeasured and unprotected. Now, the community will then, because of that uh, vulnerability, be able to be attacked, to be harmed, to be hurt. In fact, John says that outside the temple, it will be given over to the nations and that they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Now, remember, we've been doing this Revelation thing long enough that when you see a number like that, when you see a number like 42 months, we should immediately say, it's not meant to be literal, but symbolic. 42 months is three and a half years. That is half the holy number seven. And so in a sense, if you think about this period of time being this holy amount of time, seven years, for half of that period, 42 months, the people of God are going to be vulnerable. They're going to be exposed. They're going to be given over to the nations and potentially hurt, trampled on. Now that seems a little unfortunate. But directly after John's instructed to measure the temple, we're introduced to two witnesses. And those two witnesses begin to answer a very central question that kind of builds off this idea of vulnerability. And that central question is, What are the faithful people represented by the temple meant to do? What are the faithful people meant to do? Let's go back. We're going to read verse 3 and then jump to verse 7. All right, so here we are, chapter 11, verse 3, then 7. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. All right, so we've come into this period of time where John is measuring the temple, leaving a bit of the community exposed, and we've already had this implication that the temple represents the community. Now we get introduced to these two witnesses, and these two witnesses begin their testimony. They begin a prophetic word to prophesy to the people. Now, Last week or two weeks ago, I think it was last week, we talked about a prophetic voice. And I talked about having a preacher-teacher kind of charism, not really a prophet charism. And we did get a few questions about then what is prophetic? So I want you to hold that question because we're about to answer. But we're going to answer in line here in the first half of chapter 11. So the witnesses come, they begin to prophesy. They prophesy for 1,260 days. And how much time is that? Three and a half years. And so here we get the three and a half years of vulnerability and the two witnesses prophesying for three and a half years. So again, one half of the holy number seven. When they finish their testimony, they are killed. Killed by the great beast. All right, now in these verses, John makes an incredibly important point. He takes the idea of dying faithfully and goes a step further. These two witnesses symbolize the whole church. There are a few different ways to interpret this, so I won't say that is what they symbolize, but the most common understanding of these two witnesses is that they represent the church, all of God's faithful people, and they are prophesying in the same way that we as disciples of Jesus, we as God's faithful people, are also meant to prophesy. And so we're going to get to that in one second. These two witnesses act as a prophetic witness to God, and then they die in their faithfulness, only then to rise victorious in the end. So, they are faithful people of God, prophesying to God's truth. They are killed for their prophetic voice, but then... They are raised to new life in this victorious end with God. Sounds pretty good. I want to note, pause here, that this prophetic truth of God that goes against the powers of the world and even makes one vulnerable to the powers of the world, even unto death, begins to sow the seeds of what will become Christian martyrdom. This idea, martyrdom, changes the game for Christianity for good. Now, yes, obviously these early Christians knew that Jesus offered himself freely to the cross, right? That he sacrificed himself freely. But the idea then, or the translation or connection, that then we as disciples of Jesus should also then be willing to give up our lives for the truth, That hadn't really taken root just yet. John's letter, this revelation story, vision, is one that really begins to push on the idea of martyrdom, on the idea that being prophetic, being faithful to Christ as a disciple, being faithful to God through Christ, is actually a way to reap, pain and hurt and heartbreak in this fallen, broken world. When that happens, one may be killed. And yet, even after being killed for your prophetic truth, you will be raised again, raised again in triumph with God. This is a powerful idea, and it completely undermines the ways in which empires kept people doing what it was they wanted them to do. If we think of Rome and we think of Jesus as a crucifixion, right? Jesus is crucified not because they simply want him executed. There are plenty of easier ways to execute a person than to crucify them. Crucifixion was an act of terrorism. Rome painfully nailed people to wooden crosses, and then put them up in public so people would be horrified, terrorized by the way in which they might be killed if they, what? If they go against Rome. And so Rome is able to control people, even if they disagree with Rome, because they've scared them. Jesus, in a sense, begins this shift. He uses the cross as a means of a horrible death, in order to compel people to be more faithful to God, to be God's beloved community. And here in Revelation, just a generation or so later, we get this idea writ large. Now the faithful community of disciples is represented in these two witnesses and called to a courageous, fearless, death-defying act of prophetic witness, even if, The world brings their worst. Now, I mentioned something about prophetic voice. Last week I said I'm not a prophet. Okay. Um, But if there is a... I said that under one understanding of prophetic voice. And that understanding is kind of the purest classical sense of a prophet is one that points out wrongs speaks truth to power, has a vision for something better that goes really against the world. That's a great thing. I don't typically do that. I tend to come alongside people and try to guide and lead and teach. It's just kind of how I am. Um, I've often said that I'm an advocate, not an activist. And it's, it's that similar idea where I tend to want to be in the community and help kind of push and lead the community rather than kind of speaking from outside into the community. And that's just, that's kind of who I am. That's one way of understanding prophetic voice. Here we see with these two witnesses that the community itself is now meant to be the prophetic voice, that the community itself is meant to prophesy, So in that way of understanding prophetic voice, we are all meant to be prophets. We are all given this gift in order to prophesy to God's truth and in doing so move our world in the right direction, except that when we prophesy Christ, when we tell God's story through Christ, it's not a story the world likes. Worldly power is threatened by Jesus. Now I want to unpack that idea for just a couple of minutes. It's hard to get into this idea of martyrdom. I mean, this could be hours and hours of lectures and ideas and theology and all that stuff. But I want to speak about a prophetic voice in regards to sacrifice. This passage makes it very clear that we're to give up whatever... Whenever, in order to live lives of faith, okay, we are to give up anything that we have, anything we can do, give over everything we are and have in order to be prophetic witnesses to Christ. As Episcopalians, as American Christians, we often debate back and forth about how much is too much. So How much should we give? How much should we do? What really is the problem? Um, We tend to put a limit on how much we are to give, and that limited gift causes a lot of problems. Here, we see that our giving back is meant to be unlimited that what we are called to do and what we are called to give is whatever necessary to maintain a life of faith. And faith, our Christian identity, is not at our convenience. We often treat faith and discipleship like a pretty outfit we pull out of our closet and put on whenever we feel like trotting it out. Discipleship is a becoming, okay? Discipleship isn't a decision, Discipleship isn't even an action. Discipleship is bigger than all of that. It is a becoming. Through acts of faith, we become disciples. It is through acts of giving of our giftedness, whatever that looks like. And yes, that includes money, but it includes time and talent too. By giving of our gifts, we become disciples we become that community of faith. So do not get caught up in how much. Remember Jesus says, how many times are you supposed to forgive? Seven times? Nope. Seven times 70. Jesus says, you forgive, you give, and you give, period. There's never too much. Instead, ask yourself every day, today, every day, Ask yourself a question that will form us moving forward. What stands in the way of you becoming a more faithful disciple? What stands in the way? What is a hurdle or a wall or a limit that you have placed on your discipleship that stands in the way of you becoming the faithful person God created you to be? Then Once you begin to answer that question, and by the way, the answer will change all the time, take action. Take action to move toward a better way of being. And in doing so, we really become the witness. We become the prophet. We become the community that God wishes we would become. All right, so back to Revelation. Here's a question we can ask about these witnesses. Why two? I mean, one witness, three witnesses, 12 witnesses. I mean, it could have been any number. Why two? Again, this is one of those points where we, we get to, we don't really know. I mean, the answer could be that, well, let me put it this way. Most scholars think the two witnesses represent two critically important prophetic moments in the life of Israel. One being Moses and the other being Elijah. In both of those prophetic moments, the community, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, whatever you want to say, the community makes a very significant pivot. And that pivot changes them for good forever. And so it's very possible that those two witnesses really represent those two prophets or those two moments in which the community made a hard pivot, were transformed into something really much better than they were. In a sense, John could be in the back of his mind or in his heart of hearts hoping that this moment, this revelation, this story as it went out, would become one of those moments, that hard pivot, where the faithful people become even more so the beloved community of God. So, John, I, I want to kind of say that again. John's not saying that these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, okay? That's important because it, I don't want to get into the whole like, well, uh, Moses and Elijah are reincarnated or something like that. Don't worry about that. Um, I think that what really happens here is that they represent the witnesses or. They are represented by these witnesses as a means of inviting us into a way of being that really helps change who we are as a community. All right, now at the end of this first section, we'll keep going, we have this really ugly, crude display of evil, right? After the witnesses have prophesied, they are killed and their bodies are left. John writes that for three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations gazed at their dead bodies and refused to let them be placed in a tomb, and the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, that's some real ugliness here, right? That's horrible. So these two prophets of God, these two witnesses saying this wonderful truth about God are being tormented for three and a half years, but then they are killed and then their bodies are so disrespected. And I mean, listen to this, the inhabitants of the earth gloat over them. They celebrate and they exchange presents. Good grief. The people of the earth, the people who have refused to turn toward God, are still acting in a way that is so very evil. If we remember, a third of the people were killed, and yet the two-thirds who remained still resisted God, still would not turn toward God. So we've got this small group of the sealed, the faithful people who are in this, what is often called the tribulation, and of the people who are not, sealed and faithful, the majority of the people, they treat these prophets in the most horrible way. After three and a half days, which is still half the holy number, the breath of life from God entered the witnesses' bodies and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. This is sort of an incredible moment. So the witnesses prophesy for three and a half years. They are killed by the beast. Their bodies are disrespected in the street. People even exchange gifts because they have died. And after three and a half days, right? Representative of the three and a half years, now three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered the witnesses and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. This breath of life echoes many, many moments in scripture where God's breath, gives life. I mean, we see that breath of God over the deep at creation. God breathes into the first human. We see with Ezekiel that God breathes over the dry bones and they rise. Over and over again, God's breath represents life force. And so even though these two witnesses have died in the world, God's life force comes back into them. Look at verse 13. At that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. So a tenth of the city is destroyed, but the rest of the people... so. Seven, you know, 7,000 times 10, right? So we've got 7,000 people die, but nine-tenths, 90% of the people who remain were terrified and gave glory to God. Now remember, numbers matter, okay? These numbers are meant to be very hopeful. They symbolize the community on earth. One-tenth die, nine-tenths live. Now, when God judged Israel back in the Old Testament through Elijah, it was exactly opposite. Remember in this moment with Israel, if you don't, then go back and read it or don't, um, the story is that the Israelites lost their way. They began to worship the pagan god Baal, and Elijah spoke into this. And Elijah's judgment through God meant that all of the people who worshipped Baal were suffered, and only 7,000 people were left alive, okay? So in the Elijah story, those who turned away from God, 90% were killed and only 1% lived. Now, in this Revelation story, we get that reverse. 90% live and only 10% die. Now, we might get caught up in the numbers, but I don't want us to begin to think that this is heavy-handed or ugly. It's the symbolism here that matters the most. Don't worry about the numbers and who died and who lived. The story is that what used to be has been made new. God has overturned the way that the world is working, the way that the kingdom is working. Through these prophets, 90% are saved. Because 90% are saved, 90% repent and return to God. You see, the plagues were horrible, right? We remember these plagues. These plagues suffered. People suffered, and they died, and they were hurt, and they were in pain and heartbroken, and still even after a third of the people were killed, they did not turn toward God. Now that these two witnesses... Or now that the community of the faithful have owned their prophetic voice, now the people turn toward God. The two witnesses, the community who becomes prophetic, they have succeeded where the plagues did not. So bearing witness to the truth of God, bearing witness and faith to Christ, that is the ultimate motivator. That is really how we bring about God's kingdom here on earth and how God's kingdom will be brought about in the end in total. All right. So Kimberly asks, are the three and a half years of the two witnesses testimony and the vulnerability of the community the same period? Yes, that is correct. So earlier on in this chapter, we see that the community, you know, kind of the outside of the community left vulnerable would be left vulnerable for three and a half years The witnesses prophesy for three and a half years. All of that is happening at the same time. And it's a really good question because what we will see in the second half of chapter 11, which is what we're about to get to, is a very real reminder that Revelation is not chronological. And we're gonna see that very plainly in the second half of chapter 11. I am just checking real fast because I thought I had one other question that I was going to get to. Oh, you know what, I kind of answered it in line, um, but Mary Sue wrote about what constitutes a current day prophet, and that was really the whole point of the idea of, depends on what you mean by prophet. In the very specific sense, a prophet is a person, like the prophets of old, who speak into or against the powers of the world on behalf of God. But here in Revelation, we get a much bigger understanding of what prophet really is. And the prophetic idea is such that we are all prophets because we are all disciples and people of faith. And the way that we prophesy is going to be different for every person. We are all gifted, right? Paul writes about our spiritual giftedness, the gifts of the Spirit, we are all a part of the body of Christ doing our own specific thing. So it's not about being what someone else is. It's about asking yourself that very important question, what keeps me from being the kind of person God created me to be? What keeps me from using my giftedness as part of my prophetic voice? What is it that I have that I can do And in those faithful actions, become more and more the disciple that God made me to be. That's when we really own our prophetic identity and our prophetic voice. It will be different for every single person. But every person can challenge themselves day, 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 every day. To actually ask themselves that very critical question, to be self-reflective and to be very honest about what they can do and whether they're really doing it. All right, good question. Let's jump into the second half of chapter 11. This will take a little less time than the first half because chapter 11 really kind of moves us into some new action. Let's just start with the first verse of the second half. So this is verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So we'll pause there. This verse 15 is what inspires the main text of the Hallelujah Chorus which I played before Bible study start. And I have now heard from my team that because I played Handel's Messiah at the beginning of the Bible study, Facebook blocked the video. So we're gonna have to edit that off, repost it. So I apologize for that. Um, I love the idea of music at the beginning of Bible study. I am thinking that there could be copyright issues and I may not be able to do that. So hang tight, maybe that was just a sad one week fun thing, but apparently playing the Messiah at the beginning has like canceled me on Facebook. So we'll make this work and fix it for next week. Um, but we all know the Hallelujah Chorus, even if you didn't hear it. This line, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, he will reign forever and ever. It's repeated over and over and over again in this most incredible, most well-known of all English language songs, where we stand when it is sung, this is a triumphant passage. This poetry in the second half of chapter 11 is amazingly triumphant and is beautiful. And so now, whenever you hear the hallelujah chorus, you can lean over to your neighbor and say, did you know this text comes from Revelation chapter 11? And then you can be such a scholar or you'll look like a nerd. One way or the other, it's all right. Either is good. All right, let's keep going after verse 15. We're going to begin with verse 16 here and read really to the end. Then the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. This poetry may cause us To wonder about timing. Now it's obvious to any reader who reads this chapter that John is witnessing the after party, right? John's witnessing the celebration in heaven by the elders in the throne room. And it seems a little premature, right? I mean, we're kind of only halfway there through the book of the whole book of Revelation. And yet, like, what are they celebrating? This is the moment, as I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, when we are reminded brilliantly that Revelation is not chronological. And we've said this a few times, so here's one of those moments where we can read this and say, why are they celebrating? We haven't even seen the dragon yet. We're going to get their next chapter. But that kind of celebration is premature if we think that Revelation is indeed chronological. But we know better. Revelation is a series of multiple threads of one big story. In other words, it's perspectives of the same big story arc. In writing, that's very hard to do. Much easier to do on screen when you get all of the visuals and you can tell when you're in different places with different actors or different characters that you might see multiple threads of a storyline all converging at once. It's just much harder to do in writing. We know there are some writers in the last you know, couple hundred years who have been able to do this really well. John's just not that kind of writer. That's okay. He's a good guy. What he wrote is effectively a few threads in sequence. So we have to now go into chapter 12 knowing that what chapter 12 talks about is stuff that actually happened before the majority of chapter 11, right? We're going to learn what else is going on on earth while chapter 11 is going on. All that said, we see here the great arc of God's rescue mission. We see the end of that great arc. God wins, right? The arc that we have received reinforces to us What we know and what we believe, God wins. And now we just have to read through these other chapters to find out what else is going on before the end that we know is going to come anyway, which is God wins. So until then, let's note what this poem actually tells us. So the elders fall on their faces to worship God, giving thanks to God who is and who was. Very interesting little passage right there, because when we say our prayers together, what are we used to saying? We speak of God who was, who is, and who is to come, right? That's the way that we pray. Here, the elders begin to praise God who was and who is. There is no who is to come because what has happened here is that God's future is now the present. There is no is to come because what has been coming, has now come. God who was and who is, period. And we see this as being such a very final moment, like this really is the end. We learn, too, in this poetry that the nations raged, but that, too, has come to an end. And now is the time of great judgment, when the servants and saints of God will be rewarded and those who destroyed earth will be judged, Now, big note. I do not want us, with all of our efforts in this study, to get lazy and to read words that are not there. So in this passage, we hear that those who destroyed Earth will be judged. Let's actually focus for a moment on what the idea of judgment is. Judgment, does not perfectly equate with punishment, all right? Typically, we get this idea of the end judgment as, you know, we see this with Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, right? You kind of get this big idea where there's almost a line drawn in the middle, and some people go up to heaven, and some people go down to hell, and this judgment moment is really about God saying, are you going up, or are you going down, and this has rippled and rippled and rippled throughout Christian theology, right? What is one of those classic ways of talking to people? You know, if, if you are seeking to save souls, what's that classic question? Do you know where you're going when you die? That kind of question is theologically problematic. First off, it's actually not the best theology interpreted from revelation we'll talk about that in one second second scaring people into faith is not ideal yeah we see in revelation that some people were terrified and then they believed in god okay it's not as if you can't be terrified by god i mean god is god after all and god is scary but wouldn't it be better to feel this compelling into a better way of being, that magnetic attraction to the person of Christ, to the meaning of what Jesus gave us, this beautiful way of living, not only within ourselves and our families, but our wider communities, the entire global community, wouldn't it be better if we actually brought people in attractionally and didn't use fear? We see the idea of that up or down judgment here a little debunked, okay? Judgment, the actual word in Greek and its root word in Hebrew, the same words, depending on which one you're reading, really means seeking and finding balance and justice. All right? So when you read judgment, don't read punishment. Instead, read justice. Think about the best of our legal system. The best of our legal system is not just to take everybody who's done anything wrong and discipline them and punish them. No, really the best of our legal system is that we provide a just path for people to right their wrongs, right? That as Christian people should be exactly what we're hoping for, right? There is a sense of repentance, when one does wrong, right? We are not simply written off forever because we make a bad choice. Instead, we are people created by God, created in the image of God, and we as people, no matter what wrong we do, have an opportunity as beloved children of God, every person, y'all, every person, has the opportunity to repent, to turn back toward God, to make amends. Now, I'm not talking about something cheap, okay? Do not misunderstand me. This is not like a hippy-dippy thing. What it is, though, is an opportunity for real work to be done, for real justice to be served and achieved, and for true repentance to be the goal of the day. Not a one of us is without sin, and yet, Every one of us, regardless of our sin, is able to repent and return to God and be forgiven. Every one of us. That's really what this moment is about. God wins. And when God wins, we know what God's all about. Think back to chapters 4 and 5 and plenty of countless other places in the Bible, and we know that God's purposes are deeply rooted in the desire to rescue the entire creation, this desire to defeat the forces of evil and to rescue humanity from that evil, to rescue humanity from fear and pain and even death itself. Here, in this passage, in this holy poem, this hymn that is being sung in God's kingdom, we know that now God's moment to usher the whole creation into a new reality has finally come. And when that happens, what, is, what God is doing is actually overcoming death itself for good forever. In this moment, God has, once and for all, for all, defeated death. That is the ultimate end. Death itself dies. It's this beautiful vision, this amazing look at who God is, what God hopes for, and what God's plan of salvation will be in the end. And y'all, nobody's left out. Everybody receives this invitation. Everybody receives this opportunity for genuine, true judgment, because God is grace-filled. And God's grace is something that extends as an opportunity to everyone. Death is no longer something to fear. Death itself is now gone. Now, the end of this chapter reminds us that there's a lot more to come. As I noted, this story is not over. We get to find out beginning next week what all has been going on while John's been eating scrolls and measuring temples and listening to witnesses and all the other stuff. We're gonna find out what's going on on the earth. And boy, does it get fun. All right, everybody. I hope you have a fantastic week. We will make sure that the tech stuff does not shoot us in the foot next week and that everybody can be in. Until then, God bless you all. Stay safe, stay healthy, and ask yourself what you can do to use your gifts for God's glory. Bye.